welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 15, Bromance. One of the great bromances of Canadian political history began with what was essentially a cold call. Except in this case, it was a letter, not a call. The letter writer was 31-year-old Francis Hinks. Hinks had only come to Canada in 1832, starting an import business selling whiskey, gin, and other delicious goodies to upper Canadian merchants. Hinks had since moved on to other business ventures, but through it all, politics had become his obsession. In 1838, he started a reform newspaper in Toronto called The Examiner. Hinks had been suspicious of the more radical reformers like William Lyon Mackenzie and had steered clear of rebellion itself, though he did have to go into hiding for a week just to avoid being caught up in the general backlash. In the aftermath of rebellion, he wanted to create a reform newspaper untainted by the tarnished radicalism of Mackenzie, one that concentrated on the issue of responsible government. There was nothing subtle here. The examiner printed responsible government on its masthead. And it's likely that when Lord Durham was in the Canadas, he was influenced, at least partly, by Hinks's arguments. In April of 1839, just after the publication of Lord Durham's famous report in British North America, Hinks saw his opportunity. Here was a British peer promoting the very thing reformers wanted. But it wasn't enough that Hinks saw it. What really mattered was to have allies and the right kind of allies. So Hinks took up his pen on April 12th, 1839, and he wrote a letter to someone very much like himself, to another 31-year-old reformer who went by the grand name of Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine. Lafontaine looked like a young Napoleon. Everyone said so, uh, including Lafontaine himself. It never hurt to have a famous look-alike. So far, Lafontaine had steered just clear of revolutionary military activity. A supporter of the Patriot, he had stuck with Papineau right up until almost the first shots were fired. But then, instead of shouldering a musket, he had fled to Quebec City and to the governor Lord Gosford. He pled with Gosford to find a peaceful solution to the crisis. And when this didn't work, Lafontaine sailed to London, trying, unsuccessfully it turned out, to get an audience at the colonial office to argue for his people's rights. The next year he was back in North America, being welcomed by Papineau in exile, but then moving back to Lower Canada. He arrived just in time to be arrested and put in jail in the midst of the 1838 uprising. All along, Lafontaine had urged the authorities to grant Lower Canadians the rights of British subjects. What this meant is that in 1839, in the aftermath of rebellion, Lafontaine was perfectly situated to take a leading role in the politics of Lower Canada. He was not a vendue, he hadn't sold out and gone over to the British but nor had he taken up arms. It didn't hurt that he was well-to-do and could afford to devote himself to politics. He was ready to fight for the rights of his people. The only question was how to do it, how to respond to the threat of union with Upper Canada. And that's exactly why Francis Hinks wrote to Louis Lafontaine. 
because Hinks had an idea. He was a strategist. Other reformers had more dignitas and gravity. They would be the great leaders. But Hinks could see a possible alliance. He could see a chance, and he acted on it. He essentially asked Lafontaine what he thought of Lord Durham's report. You know, the one that had, on the one hand, called for the assimilation of French Canadians, so Lafontaine likely wasn't going to like that bit, but also the report that had called for the introduction of responsible government. Durham had claimed that the leaders of Les Canadiens weren't interested in political liberty and reform, and that they were only interested in national or racial interests. But perhaps, Hinks wrote to Lafontaine, this isn't true. Perhaps Durham was wrong when he said that the conflict in the Canadas was really based on racial animosity, that there were two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. Perhaps, hint hint, nudge nudge, you really are interested in political liberty, in winning your rights as British subjects. And if you are, if Durham was wrong, and you really are political liberals, well then, I have good news for you. Because the Union of the Canadas, the very thing so many in Lower Canada were decrying right at that moment, could actually bring you exactly what you want. It could bring you, the Canadian reformers, together with us, the Upper Canadian reformers. And it could make us an unbeatable force. The first letter was only just that, a single letter. But it started a back-and-forth correspondence that went on for months. Dozens more letters followed. The two sides didn't necessarily trust each other entirely, nor agree on all issues. And in the end, it wouldn't be Hinks who would benefit from reaching out, but rather Hinks's ally and sometimes nemesis, Robert Baldwin. But this letter from Francis Hinks began the great bromance of Hinks, Lafontaine and Baldwin, that would ultimately lead to responsible government in the Canadas. Last week, we dove into the details of this thing called responsible government, how it would work and how it would be different from the way the colonies had been governed in the past. Lord Russell and others in the British colonial office were certain that it couldn't work in a colony, but in the new province of Canada, Lord Sydenham had tried to go so far as he could to offer something that looked a little bit like responsible government, yet didn't go all the way. He put together an executive and a slate of candidates and then set to work getting them elected. Even this was something of a nod towards responsible government, for Sydenham had insisted that those with seats on his executive council would also need to find a seat in the assembly. It certainly helped that he did everything in his power to make sure they got seats in the assembly, including using some rather dubious and flat-out corrupt electioneering techniques. But all the while, Sydenham was setting about building a coalition of moderates who would be willing to govern the Canadas under his benevolent guidance there were other forces at work to undermine the government. In Lower Canada, of course, many continued to condemn the very idea of union itself. This resentment about the forced marriage of the Canadas wasn't going to go away just because the ceremony was over and the bride and groom were now officially married. Prominent figures elected to the new assembly would continue to rail against the union from their seats in the assembly and they were determined to make life difficult for Lord Sydenham. When he came calling, looking for representatives from French Canada to sit on his executive, they turned him down. 
And what's more, they would make life extraordinarily difficult for any in their ranks who even considered going over to the governor. This made things tricky for Louis Lafontaine and the few political figures who surrounded him. For they weren't contemplating going over to the governor, but they were listening to and reading letters from upper Canadian reformers like Hinks who were whispering in their ears about what could be achieved together. And that's where we start this week, with Sydenham setting about organizing his government and Lafontaine wondering if there was an alternative course of action than simple resistance to the calls of the governor and of the British. On the eve of the Union of the Canadas, there was really only one prominent voice in Lower Canada speaking out about what could be gained by the Union. The voice belonged to Étienne Parent. Parent is perhaps one of the most fascinating and complex figures from this era. He was firstly a journalist, a writer, an intellectual. But that rarely paid the bills in his years, so in addition to editing a series of newspapers, he often worked in and around the seats of government in the Canadas. Perron was not a man to choose the easy side in a debate, if choose a side he had to do, which he often insisted was not, in fact, the thing to do. Perron was a man who appreciated complexity. Very early on, he was a devout supporter of the rights of his people, editing the most important nationalist newspapers like Le Canadien. In the early 1830s, someone said of him that, quote, Perron is in journalism what Papineau is in the Parliamentary Tribune. So when Daniel Tracy and another journalist got out of jail back in 1832, just before Tracy would run in that ill-fated by-election that culminated in the Street of Blood incident, it was Etienne Perron there at the grand celebration placing a medal around Tracy's neck. And yet, Perron was a man of moderation. When Papineau and the other Patriot pushed toward more radical and violent action, Perron held back. All through 1837, he urged caution. He wanted his people to follow the lawful constitutional means. Show patience. We will win this fight in the end. For this, many of his former colleagues labeled him a traitor. Yet, in the aftermath of the failed 1837 uprising, Parral spoke out for those sent into exile to Van Diemen's land, taking up their cause in the press, arguing on behalf of those who had thought him a traitor. And when the constitution was suspended and when General Colborne cracked down harshly on those who rose up in 1838, Parral decried the illiberality of the government and its harsh oppression. For this, he was arrested and put into prison for several months through the winter of 1838-1839. Back out of prison in 1839, Parent went right back to journalism. He found himself contemplating the grim aftermath of rebellion and wondering, like other Lower Canadians, what could be salvaged from the mess of the last two years. He decried the assimilationist ambitions of Lord Durham's report, but he also claimed eventually to see some possibility in the idea of a union of the Canadas. Where others around him only saw oblique oppression, Perrault, always moderate, always using reason, wondered if there might not be a possibility to salvage many Canadian aspirations in this new arrangement. 
and he urged a kind of guarded confidence in Lower Canadians, suggesting that they needed to go into the new union with a willingness to work productively. But Perrault was in this guarded optimism very much alone, and even he had doubts. All of the major Canadian leaders in these years banded together to oppose the union of the Canadas. But it's likely that Louis Lafontaine looked to the ideas of Perron, to this possibility of working together in this moderate vision, as he himself planned what might yet come next. Fontaine received that letter from his upper Canadian suitor, Francis Hinks, this was the world he was inhabiting. So, at least initially, Lafontaine wrote back cordially but non-committally. He was interested in what Hinks had to say, but Hinks had to work to convince Lafontaine that the risk would be worth it. And he also had to convince Lafontaine that the upper Canadians could be trusted. And that is where we come back to our old friend Robert Baldwin because Francis Hinks was going to try to win LaFontaine over with reason and argument, but he was also going to use Robert Baldwin as a kind of insurance policy on faithfulness. Now, we've met Baldwin a few times over this podcast so far, the big believer in responsible government. He was one of the two reformers invited by Francis Bond Head to sit on the Upper Canadian Executive back in 1836, who then insisted that responsible government already existed and who had then forced to resign. This is Robert Baldwin, the lovelorn man whose wife Eliza died young and who carried with him the rather romantic but gruesome instructions on what to do with his own body when he too met his ultimate fate. Baldwin was one of the proponents of responsible government that Durham spoke to on his visit to Upper Canada in 1838. And last week, he also accepted a spot in Lord Sydenham's cabinet, his executive, and we'll learn a lot more about that today. Baldwin was known, of course, as the man of one big idea of responsible government. He was, even as a reformer, eminently respectable. He came from a well-to-do Upper Canadian family that could just as easily have made its way amongst the family compact if they wanted. He was also the kind of man who stuck to his principles, even when others might have thought it priggish and, frankly, annoying. He was a man of honour, as he would have seen it, and he was, Hinks assured Lafontaine, the man who would ensure that Upper Canadian reformers did right by their Lower Canadian counterparts. While Lafontaine was intrigued, he had to play his cards right. This meant publicly denouncing the Union of the Canadas as unjust and oppressive, as did his fellow Lower Canadians. It also meant that when Lord Sydenham came calling, asking for Lafontaine to sit on the executive alongside Baldwin, that Lafontaine had to reject the offer. There was no way he could accept it and not come across as just another vendue. But he also let the news of the offer slip out, never hurt to let others know that he had been considered worth making an offer too that in the vacuum left by the departure of so many national leaders after the rebellion, that Lafontaine was seen as a logical man to fill the void. In August of 1840, as he prepared to run for a seat in the assembly, Lafontaine published his address to the electors of Terrebonne, that was his constituency. In this formal public statement, Lafontaine adopted the approach that he would continue to take over the next few years. 
He, of course, decried union as an act of injustice and of despotism that was imposed on us without our consent. But he also tentatively took up Hinks's offer and the best parts, as he saw them, of Lord Durham's report. The great question of the day, he wrote, was about responsible government. And while the governor had made many promises about governing with the consent of locals, Lafontaine professed no confidence in the governor's promises. It would all depend on who was in the assembly, and of course, Lafontaine was putting himself forward. And he consciously did so as a supporter of responsible government. This wasn't, he argued, a new idea. It was, rather, the principal motivating force of the English constitution. And for myself, he wrote, I do not hesitate to say that I am in favor of this English principle of responsible government. But to really make responsible government work would mean cooperating with the true reformers from Upper Canada. Together, the two groups could form an immense majority. And although the two groups of reformers might differ in some respects, they could come together in a spirit of peace and fraternity to achieve this common cause. The bromance was blossoming. This, then, would be the campaign that Lafontaine would run on. He wasn't alone. Etienne Parent put himself forward for a seat in the assembly. But others were skeptical of Lafontaine's plans to cooperate with the upper Canadian reformers. They saw the workings of yet another potential sellout. Lift up the covers of this idea of coalition of reformers, they claimed, and what you saw was Lafontaine's own unbounded ambition. But if Lafontaine was ambitious, he was going to be disappointed in the short term. For Sydenham didn't see him as one of his candidates. In fact, when the election was finally called, and as we talked about last week, the dirty business of electioneering got underway, Lafontaine found himself the target of the governor's ambitious schemes to ensure only his candidates were elected, even in largely French-speaking areas. The one poll in Lafontaine's riding of Terrebonne was located in the one corner of the riding settled by English speakers. From there, one English-speaking Montreal paper noted the only way the election could be won was if the local British residents descended on the area and kept all others away. And this is exactly what happened. Armed with bludgeons and fortified with liquor, hundreds of local British surrounded the poll, ready to take on all comers. Rumors abounded that the governor would furnish 50 acres of land for all those who fought in his cause, and some claimed that surveyors had already been to work to lay out the lands. Lafontaine had called upon the governor to send in troops so that the poll could remain open for all electors to reach it, but the troops didn't arrive. And so Lafontaine gathered together his own crowd of hundreds of men to venture near the poll. Not far away, they paused before going to vote. Awaiting them was a force equally as large and reportedly even better armed, already having taken up defensive positions. If he moved his men forward, it would be a bloodbath. If he stopped, he was sure to lose. In the end, Lafontaine chose not to fight. Facing the prospect of violence, he sent his supporters home and the election was settled. Lafontaine lost his seat and would not be going in to the new capital of Kingston when the assembly met in June of 1841. But if he was defeated, he was not forgotten, and we'll come back 
to LaFontaine soon. The real test for a reform coalition would be faced in the new capital at Kingston. Sydenham had managed to cobble together a coalition of candidates from among the moderate elements in Upper Canada. Many of these were reformers, and those like Hinks and especially Baldwin wondered just how well they would stick by Sydenham when it came to actually governing in the colony. Would they force on the governor a truly reform agenda, and if the governor did not embrace reform, would these moderate reformers abandon the governor? The one thing everyone was certain of was that Kingston was a terrible place to be in early June. The city had done everything it could to welcome the parliamentarians. A hospital building had been transformed into a seat of government with plush new seats. The governor had rented a suitably impressive home outside the city for his official residence. But everyone else was scrambling for somewhere to stay, and the locals gleefully took advantage of the situation, charging what the assemblymen claimed were exorbitant rents. It didn't help that the city drew its drinking water from the lake rather too close to where the sewage also dumped into the lake. That spring had seen an outbreak of rabies and all the local stray dogs had been destroyed. But Kingston was nicely situated between Lower Canada and Upper Canada at the mouth of the St. Lawrence, right in the thick of loyalist country. And after the recent rebellion, this mattered. So Kingston was the capital, at least for now. Even before Parliament met, Robert Baldwin had been busily at work making the case in his own unique way for a responsible government. Remember, Baldwin had accepted a position on Sydenham's executive, which was a curious thing to do given that the executive also contained Tories. It clearly didn't fit the definition of a responsible government that Baldwin had been urging. Now, getting Baldwin on side had been a coup for Sydenham, it showed his openness to reformers and his moderation. Just what it brought Baldwin is a bit less clear, and even he had doubts. More radical reformers criticized his decision and wondered if Baldwin really had what it took to be a true reformer. Over the winter of 1841, in the lead-up to the elections, Baldwin did what he could from inside the government to steer the governor towards a more moderate course. And he didn't hide his feelings about the Tories. In fact, he wrote to Sydenham to say that he did not have confidence in many of the members of the executive and urged Sydenham to find better reformers to replace them. Ideally, people like, you know, Louis Lafontaine. Of course, Sydenham had in fact tried to get Lafontaine and failed, but Sydenham also wasn't going to dump his various moderate Tory supporters just because Baldwin said so. Baldwin himself ever confident of his own opinions, wrote personal letters to every member of the executive, telling all of the Tories that although he sat on the executive with them, he did not have confidence in them and felt that they should not be part of the government. Now, Sydenham in private wondered if their quote was ever such an ass. Before the election, Sydenham endured Baldwin's peculiarities because it helped with electioneering. But in early June of 1841, as Parliament prepared to meet, Baldwin sought out another confrontation, and this time Sydenham lost his patience. Baldwin wrote to Sydenham in early June to give him advice, you know, as one of his counselors. It was his job, Baldwin said. And Baldwin's advice was this dismiss all of the Tories on the executive and seek out Louis Lafontaine and his supporters in the assembly. Only with the support of Les Canadiens 
could Sydenham form a government which truly had the support of the Canadian people. It helped for Baldwin, this, this was exactly the kind of reform coalition he was trying to build. It was not, however, the kind of coalition that Sydenham had built, and Sydenham had endured enough of Mr. Baldwin. Only two days before Parliament was to open, Sydenham wrote back saying, Thank you very much. I accept your resignation without the least regret, calling him the most crotchety, impractical enthusiast I ever had to deal with. Of course, Baldwin had not in fact resigned, but no matter. Sydenham had decided that he had, and so he had. Baldwin was out, and now it remained to be seen if Sydenham's coalition could hold together, or whether Baldwin and the other reformers, those who came to be called the ultras, could win support away from the governor. It did not start well. The first task of the assembly, even before it was officially opened, was to elect a new speaker. This was a chance for the ultras and those French-Canadian members to stir things up, and they did so by nominating a man, Auguste Cuvillier, to the post. Someone who had gone on the record as being against the union itself and against the governor. But Sydenham's supporters opted not to resist. They would choose their fights, and this wasn't one they wanted. Cuvillier was voted in as speaker. And the next day, Parliament opened officially and we were off to the races. The main test of the government was, of course, the speech from the throne, and this passed without too much of a fuss. It seemed as if for the moment, Baldwin and the Ultras would be on the outside looking in. The moderate reformers from Upper Canada that Sydenham had attracted to his cause would stick with him. The French-Canadian reform group didn't wield enough power to shift anything so far, and what's more, they remained suspicious of the English-Canadian reformers. Lafontaine himself, remember, wasn't even in the assembly. The assembly met in session all through that summer of 1841, and Sydenham always seemed to remain one step ahead of Baldwin. In fact, that summer it looked like the great United Reform Party that Baldwin had hoped to build was falling apart. The more Francis Hinks saw of Sydenham, for example, the more he liked him. Hinks may have started the bromance with Lafontaine, but what he saw in Sydenham that summer was a governor who was committed to efficient government and progress. And on issue after issue, he found himself voting alongside the governor's supporters. So too did a number of other moderate reformers. That session, the government passed a new Common School Act, provided funding for the Welland Canal, and the governor announced a British loan of £1.5 million to pay for the public works in the Canadas. All of this was the kind of thing an English-speaking reformer could get behind, even if the measures were not, at least not yet, done as part of a responsible government. And it also left out French Canadians. Not a single French Canadian sat on the Executive Council. While Baldwin couldn't fix that problem immediately, he was continually thinking about how to build his great United Reform Party across the English-French divide. Even if the coalition was noticeable mostly by its absence in the summer of 1841, Baldwin still kept the idea firmly in his mind. And the calling of a by-election for the riding of Fourth York gave him a chance to show to French Canadians 
how much he and the reformers of Upper Canada, true reformers, he thought, supported their compatriots from Lower Canada. At this time, candidates for the assembly could, and often did, put their name forward in more than one riding. So back in the spring, Baldwin had been elected in the ridings of Hastings and Fourth York. He chose to sit for Hastings and in early August, a by-election was finally called for the seat of Fourth York. Initially, Baldwin's father, William Warren Baldwin, had been suggested as the best candidate for reform. Baldwin Sr. had been a member of the Upper Canadian Assembly before, of course. But Baldwin had an idea. And so he asked his father to step aside and to let none other than Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine run in his place. Baldwin didn't even ask Lafontaine at first, but instead moved to get support from local reformers in the riding. Only then did he approach Lafontaine with the idea. It was a spellbinding plan to have a French-Canadian run in this riding just north of Toronto, a French Catholic in a sea of Protestants. Baldwin assured Lafontaine that he could win, and so in late August, Lafontaine came west, bringing with him Etienne Perron to write about his reception in Upper Canada. And over the next few weeks, Lafontaine was greeted to a warm reception in this rural Protestant English heartland, and Etienne Perron wrote back to Lower Canada of the support he received. It was the great idea that Hinks had written to Lafontaine about two years earlier, finally in action. In the meantime though, with Lafontaine campaigning, Baldwin got to work himself to try to push for a responsible government before the assembly finished its deliberations in early September. It had been a lonely summer for Baldwin, watching many reformers consistently vote with Sydenham supporters, but Baldwin was determined to unite all true reformers around him. So on the 3rd of September, Baldwin rose in the House to move a series of six resolutions that would enshrine responsible government in the colony. The French leader Denis Benjamin Viget seconded the resolutions. Baldwin was certain that all true reformers were sure to back him on this. And in a way, he was right, but only partly. For those on the government benches had known what Baldwin was about to do and had crafted a series of their own resolutions. These were put forward by Samuel Harrison, a reformer in his own right and Sydenham's chosen leader in the assembly. Harrison had crafted his resolutions to embrace the same principles put forward by Baldwin. They too called for responsible government. But where Baldwin's resolutions were clear and unambiguous, Harrison's resolutions left a little room for maneuvering. The Harrison resolutions read that the administration, quote, ought always to be men possessed of the public confidence and opinions and policy harmonized with those of the representatives of the people. But of course, they used that crafty Anglo-Saxon word ought, which seemed to be forceful, but certainly left open some room to maneuver. Local matters would usually be in the hands of local elected governments, but the governor still had some role to play. Harrison had even shown his version of the resolutions to Baldwin to get his approval. And in the end, it was Harrison's resolutions, not Baldwin's, that came to a vote in the House that September. It seemed to be a real coup. Here was the governor's own representative in the assembly, Harrison, proposing measures to enact responsible government. 
Although Baldwin had doubts, he himself ended up voting for Harrison and Sydenham's resolutions on responsible government. And that was it. In a matter of days, it seemed to be over. Or was it? The papers across the colony celebrated the great victory, responsible government at last. And it was victory of a kind. But whose victory was it? And what had actually been won? Now that much in late 1841 remained a bit of a mystery. The resolution supported the idea that the government of the colony should be largely in the hands of the people's representatives and that the executive should govern with the confidence of the assembly. So it seemed like the theory of responsible government had been granted. But so much would come down to the details. How would this work in practice? And on this, much less was clear. Alas, Lord Sydenham himself, Charles Poulet Thompson, would not be around to manage the system he had created. A few days after dissolving the legislature that September, Sydenham went for a ride. And he fell from his horse, breaking his leg and cutting long gashes in his shins. The doctors set the fracture incorrectly, and his broken bones grated on each other. Infection set in and Sydenham writhed in pain for several days. Then Lockjaw set in, and finally, on the 19th of September, 1841, Lord Sydenham died, another Governor-General gone. Four days later, on the 23rd of September, Louis Lafontaine won election in the riding of Fourth York. There would be a new governor, and there would also be a new leader of Les Canadiens in the assembly when it met again. The Sydenham system, the cobbled-together coalition of moderate reformers and Tories had held together for one sitting of the new Canadian legislature. A new form of responsible government had been won, at least, and perhaps only, in theory. And when Baldwin and Lafontaine sat together in the assembly, they would test whether their idea of a French-English cross-national political party really could work. Okay, thanks for listening this week. I hope you're enjoying the ongoing story of politics in the 1840s uh, and learning the sad fate meted out to governors general who came to Canada in these years. You can't say it was a thankless job. I mean, it was nicely remunerated and Thompson was raised to the nobility, but it clearly did take a toll. And Thompson won't be the last to go. There's a whole sidebar quiz I think we could have about, about the distressing fate of governors general. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Next week, we see what kind of a child is born of the United Reform Party bromance that is the Baldwin-Lafontaine coalition. Baldwin has definitely replaced Hinks, and a new governor arrives and tries to decide if he can govern in the same way as Sydenham. Hint, he can't. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Rob Viscardus at Paradigm Pictures, with the still very generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.